All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 230. Uh, Mr. Jason Lindgren is with me, and we're pleased to have Mr. James True back. I think this is the second time, might be the third. They'll correct me, but I think it's two. This is the third. Oh, this is the third. Okay. I had that in the back of my mind. I should have just went with it. Uh, it's always interesting when we talk with Mr. James True. Um, there's a level of communication that you don't find everywhere in this world. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good afternoon. Yeah, it actually is kind of hot and sticky here, but everything is beautiful and green. And the animals, boy, oh boy, with people not being out as much as they once were, the animals are everywhere, which is kind of a nice thing to see. But do we have anything? We don't. And uh, what really led us to want to do this episode, as a lot of folks probably know by now, I had picked up a Masonic Bible off of eBay, and there's this whole interesting section in the beginning on King Solomon's temple, and James True is very good with the whole temple thing, so that's where we're going to take this. And just to put a fine point on it, I've been studying similar things because I'm trying to outline a more logical and in some ways provable explanation for the fall of Rome and how the heck did ancient Rome become Vatican. Uh, which I've done. And of course, that all relates to the temple. But in the research that I've been doing for quite some months now, uh, it's stated over and over that Solomon's temple existed for 40 years. For the vast majority of the time, it was in a place elsewhere. And uh, it's just a heck of a story. It's such a narrow point of time. And so much of our history seems to be affected. But uh, anyhow, welcome, James. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, it's really good to see you guys again. And uh, yeah, let's dive into some uh, some good temple stuff. All right. Jason, why don't you, do you know where, where you want to make an end point here? Well, again, with this Masonic Bible, it's obvious that they've got a big heart on for King Solomon's temple and all that. And I suspect a lot of this is way more symbolic than actually historic. But James, I will let you tell any story you want about that. How do you feel about what I just said and... What do you think about all this? I think that to understand the importance of the temple as an archetypal center, you have to go back to the Garden of Eden and realize that when when man was uh, either self self excommunicated himself or was cast out, whichever way you want to look at that, uh, uh, the the two cherubim that were placed on the eastern uh, gate uh, became a beacon and a doorway. Uh, the two pillars were, are really the original two pillars, I think, would be the cherubim. Um, th- those cherubim guarding the gates of Eden uh, represent a doorway, a, uh, a way for us back into the garden, so to speak. And so if you really want to understand the temple, I think you have to understand the tabernacle. And in order to understand the tabernacle, you have to go back to Eden and understand that first doorway, that first threshold that that man went through. Um, you know, into the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life or however you want to look at that story. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that there's a doorway and that doorway is Solomon's temple before Solomon. So let's let's just try to lay down some common sense so people can think about this. We're referencing things that are in scripture and other places that have been around a long, long time, which tells you there's a reason around. But James, are we going to talk symbolically are we talking about things that we assume physically existed? Is it both? Is the overall message that this is a symbolic way to think about things that matter? How would you frame it? I would say that that it's a holographic truth, which would mean it would have to be both, right? You would need a physical representation in this world in order to have a spiritual archetypal experience that you can interact with. This is how we do everything. You know, uh, uh, imagine a child who loves a teddy bear, but you never actually gave him a stuffed piece of wool that has cotton inside of it for him to love. He doesn't have a medium, right, for him to charge that bear with his love. Same, Same with the temple. So you have the idea, you have the yearning, and then you need the actual furniture, the set pieces, the props, so to speak, you know, in order to implement this plan to 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 cast this spell, so to speak. So let me let me ask you one more question. I know Jason wants to get in here, but just to try to make this approachable for the average person to consider. Sometimes I think uh, it's almost like looking at a computer's motherboard. The t- the temple would be the center processing unit, but it's not here right now. But every little Masonic Hall and so many other places, they're existing, right? And they represent Solomon's Temple. 
They're most of them replicating that idea to one degree or another. And I would even go so far. The research that I just completed shows that the Sistine Chapel was actually built to replicate Solomon's Temple. So is that a way to think about this? Is it almost like a circuit board? And the big concern here is to get that central CPU kind of idea, which would be the rebuilding of the temple. Yeah, I think you nailed it. There's two different pieces to that. The first of which, of course, is resonance. Um, if you have a tuning fork that's at 432 hertz and you strike it, another tuning fork near it, near it would also start to vibrate because they share that same resonance. Therefore, if you construct your chapel, if you construct your temple, if you construct whatever building you want to resonate uh, with Solomon, you will want to uh, uh, mimic those proportions to cause that belief technology to be engaged. Uh, that belief technology works from physical props in our world. And if we see calories being spent to make sure the temple, to make sure the chapel is lined up and, and has the same proportions, those calories will uh, resonate through time as, as we, it's sort of like a reverence technology, if you think about it. Your reverence for Solomon's temple is able to manifest itself through this modern version of Solomon's temple that you've built through time. Keep in mind, Solomon's Temple has been several different uh, things. It's not always; it hasn't always been a building. Before it was a building, it was a tent. You know, before it was a tent, it was a garden. So it's always been this same. I'm sorry to, to even send that home. Look at the future version. What would the future version of Solomon's Temple look like? It would look the same, but ten times larger. Uh, each time the temple's been rebuilt, it's been resonated by ten. And I think it's just hard for us to picture what a what a new modern temple would even look like. But it's probably in plain sight, uh, you know, right in front of us, but more more in our face than ever before. So before we get much further in here, I would like to actually read a paragraph out of here. This whole section at the beginning of this Masonic Bible was written by Dr. Kelchner, and it says the Bible and King Solomon's Temple in Masonry. The traditions and romance of King Solomon's Temple are of great interest to everyone who reads the Bible. They are of transcendent importance to Masons. The Temple is the outstanding symbol in Masonry, and the legendary story of the building of the Temple is the fundamental basis of the Masonic rule and guide for conduct in life. The skill of many artists and architects has gone into Dr. Kelchner's restoration of King Solomon's Temple and Citadel. The cream of Masonic historical and philosophical writing has been drawn upon for his description of the temple and its relation to Masonic ritual. So right there, they're saying that they're drawing all of this from the notion of Solomon's Temple. Yeah, the construction uh, process itself is vital to the residents um, working inside the temple. For, for example, you know, the very first temple, well, the very first stone temple, uh, could not be sh shown or cut or tooled with steel um, because steel is used to kill people. And because of that, it's a, 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 uh, it doesn't have the sanctity or the parthenia to, to cut the stone for the temple. So literally the ingredients, the people, uh, the plans, the site, everything would have to resonate the exact same frequency, that, you know, that frequency of the temple and anything else that, that mimics that is going to be able to resonate off that same kind of belief. So let's, let's address this. Why Solomon's temple? And just to put a framework, and unfortunately I, I can't find my notes on this in front of me. So if I mess up a place name, cut me a little slack. Anyone can use the internet to find the right places. Apparently from the, the history that we're handed, the temple, there, it ended up being two Israels really. The place called Israel, which was the majority of the tribes, then this other place, which was the tribe, I think, of Judah and Benjamin. I hope I have that right. And it was much smaller. The big concern was the Israel part. Now, it, I think it was Shiloh. For hundreds of years, the temple was there. So then this narrow little sliver of time attributed to Solomon's lifetime, 40 years from the accounts that I've read, uh, Solomon's temple goes in. And that ends up echoing through history to touch almost every facet of the lives of human beings that have lived in this world since. And just to put a fine point on it, um, the idea here is that they were all put into bondage. That's how it ended, and the temple was thrown down, taken off to Babylon. At some point, they come back, and a guy named Ezra rewrites part of the old books. But why Solomon's temple, do you suppose, James? Why not the one that existed 
um, I think it's in Shiloh, for hundreds of years in the bigger portion of the tribes called Israel. Right, right. Well, I think that's more has to do with blood, you know? the. I think you're right. Yeah, it's it's David. This goes back to David, and this goes back to the belief that, that there is a chosen people and a chosen blood. And that blood has been... Uh, not only blessed, but has also been tainted in very similar ways. Look at what happened to Cain. Look at what happened to Abel. And then look at what happened to Isaac after. There, look at all of the history of the Abrahamic children, the children of Abraham. Look at how the Old Testament injected trauma into their bloodline and then called them, you will be my chosen people. Here comes the trauma, and now you're going to get the reward. And so that you end up with a, a lineage of people that are used as an instrument, an instrument inside society uh, to you know, change behavior. And because you have an instrument in the people, you're going to have structures that they need. You're going to have to have those props. And of course, the temple is going to be that prop. It, it's What's profound about that temple is just as it moved from place to place, it's very astute for you to notice that because many will argue, no, no, it's always been here on the mount. The exact same thing happened with Mecca, didn't it? Where all of a sudden one day, Mecca's not here anymore. Mecca's now over here. And you have this alignment where the cross and the crescent, the two Abrahamic children of, of Christianity and Islam, have decided to hey, let's call the same place really important, but for very different reasons. And then we can argue about it later. And welcome to 2020, you know, like welcome <laughs> to, to where we are. This is why I say, I say, can you smell what the temple rock is cooking? Because this has been a wrestling match inside the spiritual realm of our, of our theater now for hundreds and thousands of years, and it's still playing out. So I love where you started there, and I'm with you 100%. I think it's about blood. That's why the temple that was around forever um, became this other thing that lasted a very small period of time, and it became the one that mattered. It's absolutely about blood, but here's kind of the bombshell that I've been working on. Um, the rules, Moses, I think we all know Moses is the big deal in all this, right? Um, but as we begin to look at the historical facts, both on the, the Jewish side and on the, the Western biblical Christian side, you can't nail down exactly who Moses was. Was he a royal pharaoh bloodline? Was he something else? Was he truly, truly Jewish? But what we do know is that he married a Midianite woman. So by the rules of being Jewish, all of Moses' offspring, by their own rules, cannot be Jewish because the mother has to be Jewish and he married a Midianite woman. Here's right. why I think the Temple of Solomon matters, because I think they are truly of the Mosaic bloodline. And I think when Ezra, think of the band better than Ezra, what's that about? Uh, when they came back out of bondage after the temple had been destroyed, Ezra comes back, he recombines the so-called priestly families. I think there was like 24 of them or something like that. He actually writes out of the Bible the truth of the bloodline that's been hidden ever since. So we've all been led to believe, and not very convincingly, when you go back and look at it carefully, that we knew the priest had to come from the Moses bloodline, but they pushed it off on his older brother, Aaron, who supposedly was trained by Moses. I think that's where they did the bait and switch. I think truly it was Moses's actual bloodline who by their own rules couldn't be Jewish because he married a Midianite woman. So all his offspring weren't Jewish mothers, which is how they were tracking it through. I think that's the mitochondrial DNA, isn't it? I don't know. I might have that wrong, but I think that's what's going on. Um, and there's quite a bit of evidence to show it. And this will relate. Uh, when I get around to being able to put it all together, how supposed ancient Rome just magically morphed into the Vatican. But I mean, what do you think? I think that that's profound, especially considering that uh, inside the Ark was Aaron's staff, right? It was yep. the only thing that was growing. It was the only piece of genetic DNA life that was alive. And and that was, that was Aaron's staff, a very important element to it. So, uh, yeah. You know, let's keep in mind that uh, Noah <laughs> Noah was profound in Egypt just as much as he was outside of Egypt, and you know he was trained in some pretty pretty. Uh, you you in, mean Mo, you mean Moses? I think. 
Yeah, I'm forgive me. Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 point is is that all of these there's genetic knowledge that that we have inside of our blood and this genetic knowledge some of us call it trauma but there's also wisdom right there's epigenetic trauma and there's epigenetic wisdom and just as you were talking about uh, Solomon being almost like a computer motherboard you have this blood which is able to have the software installed in it the the gnosis the knowledge the know-how um to carry a message through you know to hoard it even to obsess over it so much that you're willing to kill and enslave the rest of the world to protect it uh you, that kind of compression that kind of protection on a on a wisdom well it gets a little more interesting uh, when you begin, you know, like how many people even was aware that when Ezra came out of bondage in Babylon, uh, he was famous for being a biblical scholar by the acceptable history we're handed, that he rewrites all this. Um, that's where the obscuring of the true bloodline occurs, I think. But here's some interesting things. Most people are also not aware that the first five books of the Bible are very different from the Jewish tradition. They've been reordered, there's some other things, but even the story of Adam and Eve, very different in the Hebraic tradition and the biblical tradition. But um, in the biblical tradition, uh, Moses goes to die in Moab, right? And this plays back to James Shelby Downard's explanation of why the Southwest of the United States is so magical. There's a place called Moab there, I've been there. Uh, so it clearly took its name for the place supposedly where Moses went to die. But you see, it's just Moses and God in the scripture. And they say things right after he dies, like, and then they buried him. Well, who's they? He's just there with God. But all these things go on. But I think it's critical to point out that the Southwest is magical in the Masonic circles and the people who named them, the pe people who founded them, the onomology, the name magic, the uh, the topology, uh, the places, the latitudes and longitudes, all that. That's what James Shelby Downer showed, but I think it's important to show the place of Moses' death, Moab, is renamed there in Utah, right next to Arches, the, the national park we call Arches. In, in, in. Um, and I just think it's important for everyone to frame this in their mind. Um, but you know what, James, when I get ready to do the episode that I've been working on so long to show how I think logically and partially provably Rome actually became the Vatican, I may ask you to come back on because of your sweeping knowledge of this topic. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's so easy to see when you're looking for it, it's so easy to see why Rome was burnt so that you could install and change through the triumvirates, you know, the first triumvirate, the second triumvirate. You're, you're watching the government go underground and, and become a mafia, you know, becoming more what it's supposed to be <laughs> in the sense of, of, of its destiny. If you look at what government is now, you understand it's really closer to a model of a mafia uh, right. set up. You know, Muerto, uh, the code of never tell is the exact same thing as having a secret clearance in the military. These are exactly the same programs, the exact same initiation ceremonies. So it, 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 I don't think that Rome, Rome didn't, uh, didn't destroy itself for a reason out of folly. It was a necessary part, but much like what you're seeing right now in, in, in America, you know, the, the, the destruction of the cities. This is how you do it. This is how you, you transition into a new form. From the inside out, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll drop another small bomb here. Um, when we go around just listening to the histories and we accept them, there's so much that's openly admitted that never gets examined. One of those things, and, and I'll cut to the chase here, those 24 priestly families that Ezra puts back together, those who took down the Roman Empire from the inside, um, but not in the way you think. That's, that's the supposition I'm going to lay down, but it's commonly on the record that the last so-called emperors, Caesars, whatever you want to come, they all come from the gens Flavia. You could think of the word gens as generation or family, maybe, um, cool. when you say yeah. gens. So they all came from there and all from one city, all the way up to Constantine. And there's crazy things that never, they're openly admitted, but they never get examined. Like, if Constantine was the emperor of it all, how come the Vatican was sitting there in Rome, but Constantine by law couldn't be? He had to go somewhere else. And this all relates to how one became the other. But I think I'm pulling us a little off here. Um, I think the intent here was to circle more tightly to the idea of the temple. So, Jason, you want to track us back? I actually can get us back because it's fascinating that Caligula, 
uh, when she occupied the, when he occupied the, the, the temple, he actually was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to redecorate the place. I'm, I'm going to want you guys to put up an effigy of me here. And I, I just think that it's ringing that bell of, of what you just said, Crow, because it's like, what would be the worst possible thing you could do to totally offend the crap out of everyone while the city is burning? Oh, I know. <laughs> Let's go in and tell everybody you would like your effigy placed uh, uh, up in place inside the holy place, like at the very sanct, the, the center of this of this temple. And it shows you that that these are known. This is statue toppling, right? This is uh, that statue's racist. And the next thing you know, there's now sixty statues that have been taken down across the United States while police cars are burning. And the entire time, the, the law and order are going, we have no idea what happened. This is the weirdest thing. It was just kind of just took off like that. So uh, the footsteps are all there. I can actually drop a little bit more here. Um, I will put out the supposition, and part of it's demonstrable, that those 24 priestly families were saved uh, when Rome came in and knocked everything down and took people into bondage again, according to the acceptable timeline under Titus. It gets problematic because, of course, Josephus Flavius seems to be, Flavius, get it? Jens Flavia? Um, Josephus Flavius seems to be the only guy who ever wrote a history that mattered, and he's been shown to be a liar endlessly. Yeah. Um, not only a liar, people have questioned existence, but it doesn't really matter because it's the ideas that were put there. So even if they made up a guy or did something else to obscure it, but here's the thing for you. So when they make the Sistine Chapel, um, it replicates Solomon's temple. They even put like this marble divider to separate the holiest of holies, which by the way, a Pope later on in time removes. So now the general public that walks in there walks where the Holy of Holies should have been. Um, but when Michelangelo or the man supposedly Michelangelo comes to paint the Sistine, uh, I just did a whole study. It's almost entirely Old Testament Jewish heroes that he mm -hmm. paints into that place, which is supposedly not the original plan. And by the way, hint, 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 Michael. Angelo supposedly comes into his majority at age 13, hint, 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 and he's taken in by the Medicis, hint, hint, hint. So there's this whole who people really are thing that's been completely hidden. And I would ask why? Why don't you just honestly say what was what? But it's not hard to actually see, but I figured I'd chuck all that in to the mixing bowl. Yeah, well, now now the the sweater really starts to unravel because you really start to look at how much history is just yep just <laughs> cotton candy, you know, just a lie agreed upon. Yep, exactly, exactly. And and Josephus, I'm really glad that you touched on that because there are bottlenecks in our history that that none of us like to admit, but 95 percent of your history can literally come from one scholar. Sometimes it depends yep. on what yep. area you're looking at, and that is that's not good. That's that's really not good to you know it's it's not good to forget that I should say. Well, there there's the source of the lie we're all going to agree upon. But the thing is, is if it is correct that the twenty four priestly families ninjed out, that their actual bloodline was Moses, that was ninjed out, um, and they've been underground ever since, uh, getting into banking and all the things that control everything. A whole equestrian class is these people uh, that gets created in Rome, and slowly the equestrian class does away with all the old pagan nobility and supposed royalty over time from the inside out. Um, and that leads us up to Saul Invictus, uh, the worship of the sun, which morphs straight into the Vatican. The last Saul Invictus temple is actually in a cave under the Vatican and very few people, and this is, you can look it up. So the Pope back then takes the crazy hat from the Saul Invictus last Pope, takes his altar, takes his throne, takes all these things, and then all of a sudden they say, oh, it's illegal to worship the sun anymore. The Vatican's the only game in town. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a whole line that we'll draw here, but why don't you pull us back in, James? Let's let's get back to the temple we started on. So we have to keep in mind that, that St. Peter's bones are there. An entire temple was built around a guy's bones. And I think that when you start to look at bone technology, how it actually ties in, You'll find is uh, uh, not to make a joke out of this, but a serious splinter in uh, in how we uh, we understand faith and and how we revere our ancestors. 
The cave of patriarchs is, is a colossally important place. It's Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, all of these massive giants of, 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 of the entire litany of, of Abrahamic traditions is buried in the same place in the same cave. And that cave is protected uh, and, and revered as, as one of the most important relics next to the, the, the temple itself, next to the temple mount. That nothing is more important to Jewish culture than this cave of patriarchs. And there's there's just something to bone technology. It's something that I've really wanted to get into for a long, long time that I've just slowly been researching are, uh, along the are, side. Are you talking about the cave under St. Peter's Basilica that was the last refuge of the Pope of Sol Invictus? Mithras, uh, basically? So, no, this other cave, the, the cave of patriarchs, mm. and uh, sorry, I can't remember the name right now. But uh, it's no, it's not there. It's, okay, because I, I was gonna, yeah. yeah. But but what's interesting is that, and I I've, I've got to get my notes in front of me here before I do all this. It's either the Sistine Chapel or St. Peter's is actually built on an older cemetery. St. Peter's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, St. Peter's. So so the, is it the Palatine? I I don't want to cover this because I know I'm gonna mess it up. But is it Palatine is the word? Is that the right word for the the previous cemetery? I don't know. But but there's definitely that was a former. In fact, they moved St. Peter onto a hill uh, that was harder to construct on, right. specifically so they could be on top of yep. this cemetery. And and we keep missing that. There's uh, just last week I was researching a fort in Nashville, a star fort, and it's it's underneath the star the star fort is an Indian burial mound. Why are why are people building <laughs> stone structures? purposely on top of burial mounds why is the city of paris on top of 200 square miles of bones of, of forgotten bones why is every catholic church have a splinter of someone's bone inside the pulpit somewhere and we're all just on top of it like this is all normal all of this is normal and then you have saint peter himself the, the most gilded cage uh, coffin in the world is at the center of the most revered building in the world. And it's just normal business. It's just standard fair business. It's, it's a profound technology that I, that I think that we've been told to ignore. Uh, there's something about bone reverence and bone technology that, that we just don't understand that we used to know, but we don't anymore. It's forgotten well, knowledge. There, there's a claim that some of the popes were buried in lead-lined caskets. I think Borgia, um, who would that be? Uh, Alexander Pope Alexander, was that his name? I don't remember, but the Borgia, the first Borgia Pope, who was almost certainly Jewish, by the way. Um, and so it goes on and on and on uh, what's going on here. But how is it that that's not common knowledge? It's not really even a secret. It's just that the textbooks don't talk about that, right? But it's easy for anyone to look up. But these things were built on an older cemetery. Not only that, I will probably cover this when I do the Rome Vatican transition. Uh, I think it's related, the cemetery is somehow related to a Sybil. Of all things, a Sybil, a Sybil. <laughs> I'm not kidding. From the older, when the cemetery, uh, it has some connection to a Sybil. Um, people might think of uh, of uh, what was the navel of the world there, uh, where they went to go. You know, everyone who was important. Uh, I can't think of it in Greece. It's the uh, you know where the women went in and supposedly Delphi. breathed vapors out of the ground. I can't yeah. think. Delphi. So, so that that person might be described as a Sybil, and it's really not. But I'll, yeah. I'll get into these things. But that's all all on offer. And then when you see things like the Sistine built to mimic Solomon's temple, and yet you're being told this is all about Jesus in the New Testament. And then when you go in and see damn near everything Michelangelo supposedly painted is all Jewish heroes, uh, meanwhile being paid for and brought up by the Medicis, uh, who are Jewish by admission, uh, it goes on and on and on. Yep. I have to add to this because I think you'll like how this actually ties it together. Let's say that there's this bone technology, this reverence for our ancestors that we that we always naturally have. If you were to look at the natural, it, it, it's natural for us to go to a cemetery. It's natural for us to remember our ancestors. Please, just for a moment, try this hat on. All of our ancestors have been enslaved by someone who knows how to control or to necromance their spirits. And the person throughout history, in Christianity, in Islam, and in Judaism, the one man 
that has more power than anyone else to enslave spirits to be a necromancer is Solomon with his ring and Suleiman in Islam. It's this one guy who's been given the gift of full necromancy. And just what if the reason why all these Catholic churches have this bone embedded, these shards of bones, skull, fingers, whatever, embedded inside the pulpit is because this is how you control demon ancestral spirits. You haunt them. How do you haunt them? You take their bones and you divide them up and you take them away. You, you, you uh, migrate them. And that migration causes the spirit to always be yearning to be home. But while the spirit is yearning to be home, Everyone's inside that building on top of that yearning spirit, worshiping it, <laughs> freaking worshiping the yearning to go home. All of these yearnings, because they all are dealing with the same church, somehow that energy, that prana is focused into a central location, the initial bones. And what if the cave of patriarchy, of patriarch, I keep saying patriarchy, what if the cave of, of the patriarchs was actually some sort of pranic antenna for this belief technology. And that the reason why they're always constructing the Temple of Solomon is because Solomon himself was the very first uh, person or man who was a necromancer, the ability to manipulate and change spirits. Before anyone says this is crazy, I want to remind you, you could do a Bible search and you will find at least 30 or 40 entries where Jesus is actively necromancing removing demons from people, from pigs, from food, uh, healing people, finding people, uh, demons that are lost, sending them home. And that what's happening is, is because we've forgotten our ancestors, because we have this amnesia, all of our uh, ancestors, because they're forgotten, they are now enslaved. They're, they're able to be controlled by one who remembers, the only one who remembers would be this conglomerated, uh, machinated, eternal, single spirit that would be the collective force of all of our ancestors that we keep forgetting, that we keep ignoring. This is why paranoid schizophrenics see this. This is why people on crystal meth see this. This is why people with near-death experience see this. They're seeing things that we cannot handle. But meanwhile, there's this giant ancient church structure that knows exactly how to handle these spirits. It knows how to funnel the power, and it knows how to siphon that um, power by taking our reverence and using it into this in this machine. I'm not even trying to paint it as maniacal, guys. I'm trying to say that all this could simply just be the natural way that this world works with reverence and as we slowly learn what life is and what our ancestors are and what spirit is and what Westing is, you know, the, the Egyptian idea of dying was to West. And it's funny because the initial temple of Solomon was cast out on the East, which means to go back into the garden of Eden, you would have to West, you would have to West inside of it. Mm -hmm. So this, this is a very, very profound arch, arch, archetypal sigil is what temple, the Temple of Solomon is for so many different reasons. I know it's a huge mouthful. <clears throat> well, the, the Westing idea is, is all over the place. In Buddhism, same thing. Uh, I think it's Amitabha, the blissful pure land is in the West. Um, but the Westing idea, they didn't even have death. Westing mm -hmm. was it. But uh, I just got to say, what you just said is creepy as hell, and I hope you're wrong. But in the same breath, I will add I have pointed out on a number of occasions that the Catholic men in black spent endless energy to come to your deathbed to get that last contract, didn't they? Yep. Um, I'm just just saying, uh, is that a contract you want to enter into? For my part, I'm not interested in contracts, but go ahead, Jason. Well, that concept of Westing is even encoded in J.R.R. Tolkien's work. That's very interesting that he said that, that they will go to the West, the uh, the higher beings and all that. But I think, James, you nailed everything about the way this world works. We know that the elite know this because what are they always doing? They're always doing these different rituals and using symbols and numerics and all that to get energy or prana, as you like to say, funneled to whatever their particular desire is. And again, this all comes down to intent and channeling the energies of the world to get what they want. Well, yeah. there's there's so many parts of this that should be plain on the obvious, and this shows the power of being convinced to believe in things. 
this is an altar, but this one's not magic. Those people over there with an altar, they're doing evil magic. Here's a chalice of blood. Here's this costume, um, but this one is okay. But those people over there, it's all magical evil stuff. At some point, you've got to put one and one together to make your little 11, don't you, James? Yeah, exactly. That's that's why I keep going back to our ancestors and our bones, because every time I look at mounds in America, you know, we're surrounded by hundreds of these mounds that they're all forgotten. And most of them, when you find them, I swear there's a prison, there's a star fort, there's a prison, or there's a mental institution on top of them. And, and I don't, guys, I'm not saying that there there is a, a force a committee that goes around to make sure that all these things have this other thing. I think it's an, it's a natural resonance of being a human that you're going to say, let's put the crazy people with this hill where all the crazy shit happens. Cause that'll fix it all. It's just our natural inclination to do that. The same way we where we put sick people in hospitals. It doesn't matter what they're sick of. We just have to put them all together because it'll magically fix it. You know, I, I didn't know that James, is that a true thing that, what did you say? Prisons and mental institutions end up on top of, Many of these old Star 40 old sites? It's amazing how many times it happens. And when I say amazing, I'm working on the research for this to outline exactly strong numbers. But we've been, Fort Monroe is one that we've, we've done a lot of looking at. Uh, the mounds of, of, of uh, Chattanooga uh, is now the home of Moccasin Bend. One of the oldest serpent mounds in the southeast is on the Moccasin Bend of Chattanooga. And right now, that's a mental institution. And mm-hmm. and you the, the watching the patients there and just trying to understand how different the world is inside that little bubble where those mounds are and where they are and what they see and how blind we are to it. This the same the Starford in Nashville. They're reporting this Starfield was built for the Civil War on this natural hilltop that happened to be completely flat on top, and it's like. So A, no, hills aren't, aren't naturally flat like that with a perfect 33-degree angle or whatever the angle was. But B, there was no Civil War battle anywhere near South Nashville. So why are you telling us this is a Civil War fortification or you know, uh, a fortress? And the answer is because it feels good. It feels good to tell you that. When in fact, it was something else. It was something else entirely. And I, I think that's our true history of America has been erased. You know, one third of the Cherokee was white. Two thirds of the Seminole were black. We don't even know this stuff. There was Irish were here for for centuries before we even thought about discovering the new world. You know, Scottish, the Highlands, all of this. There's so such a rich history in this land and we just don't know it. It's been purposely (laughs) desecrated the exact same way you desecrate in the Old Testament, where when you take over a town, you're like, no, no, no. We can't just take it over. We can't just kill everybody. We need to spend the extra time to boil these bones, crush them into a fine powder, and spread them over their altar so no one can remember their ancestors. It's like, why would you waste that many calories if there wasn't something to this bone technology, if there wasn't something to this resonance economy of prana, basically? Wow. Um, so, so I was going to ask, um, well, first I'll point out uh, from a previous episode we did I don't know, maybe it was even the last one, Mr. X, who is in a position to know things most of us don't have a source to know. Uh, He said if it's before 1840 or 1850, you don't know Jack because that's where the blackboard got erased. Um, And as before we came on the air, you and I were kind of agreeing that it does appear right in this timeline somewhere is where the big shuffling of the deck occurred. But to get back on point, so many people have, have wanted Jason and I to get other people on to cover the star forts. The problem is time. Um, unless you have a foundation to talk about things and you're just looking at it, you have to have the time to do the due diligence, to do research, to do an episode that's going to matter, which has been what's prevented us. But from your point of view, uh, you can see the star shapes all over. What Do you have any idea what they were originally built for? I think that you cannot dismiss, I cannot dismiss how many of them have been built on top of burial mounds. And that, so that right there tells me here's something to this technology. There's something about why did these two things keep happening over and over again? And and to me, there's real data in there. I don't know what the data is yet, Crow, but there's real data in those, that relation, you know? 
I, I want to ask you a couple questions about the shape, but here I'll, I'll refresh some memories. As I began to look at how many there were and having to admit to myself, I can't do a show on this until I have sufficient time to really take a good, good look. One of the first things I noticed, there's really no angles of sorrow in most of those walls. In other words, the, the cube or the square has those 90 degree angles, which in all the older documents, that angle was recognized as the angle of sorrow. The reason being, it's described so you can think about it like this. If energy came down both sides of a square and when it got to the corner, it would crash. So that's how you can think about the idea of angle of sorrow. But the, the perfect triangle idea is the angle of joy. So you could think about a Y if energy came down both sides of a Y, it would join together, not crash and come down the stem. Well, I noticed most of the star forts I saw had no angles of sorrow in them, which I thought was interesting. So I wanted to be able to get more time to look. But is there a common number of, of shapes or star points or is there a commonality in the shape of these things? Dude, I'm, that's so amazing what you just said that all that does is just like home run what i'm telling you that if there's something about this bone technology right that's emanating out of the ground and now you're coming in going well you know there's no ankles to sorrow like it just it tells you that this is about energy this is something about energy and i don't want to spoil it by implying that that i i'm going to even answer you more with data because i just don't know enough about them all i right. know is that they're on top of mounds because i've been studying the mounds more than the star forts and i keep saying Damn it, there's a mound, but the star fort's in the way. <laughs> and so hearing the uh, angle of sorrow is, is really profound. And I think that I think it's taking me back to the Temple of Solomon and the resonance in there. Because it, the Sistine Chapel, too, the St. Paul's Cathedral, all these Notre Dame, all these buildings have resonance. And maybe the angles of sorrow in there are actually part of that resonance. Maybe it's it wants to crash in certain places and it wants to amplify in others. Maybe that's how the star forts are. You know, the Statue of Liberty is a star fort. Right. It's it's insane that it's like there's a star fort, but it's hiding in plain sight. All you have to do is like take a little a figure of a chick in a dress and boom, no one sees a star fort anymore. It's gone. By the way, those mounds are all over the place in Louisiana and even in Baton Rouge near where I used to live. Yeah. I was going to echo back that even Tolkien was in the know. Very few people realize how much was put into that. Of course, the two towers being the name of the second book. But think of the idea of a hobbit hole. Why is everyone so enamored and it's so homey? And I wish I could live in a neat place like that. There's no angles of sorrow, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that's profound. We all Here we are living, we build all our houses in, in angles in of sorrow. In the angles of sorrow. We all live in cubes and rectangles of crappy stuff, mostly made in China and drywall with no imagination for architecture. Even if you go back, like in San Diego, there's neighborhoods still where from the 40s and 50s, all these little craftsman houses were being built. And while you'll find the angles of sorrow, there's so much more concern for the beauty and the architecture and the things that could be done uh, to beautify a building. We're so far from that. Now we just build crappy little boxes everywhere made out of glass and drywall and how it looks or appears for most of us is not even really a concern. And it shows uh, how far we've come. Yep. Yep. This is, this is fascinating that the, the amplification, the star forts being an amplifier for that reverence it also makes you wonder if this is why the Cajun culture has. Have you noticed how how New Orleans has its own root so deep in the soil? Like it has its own flavor, and there's nothing anyone can do to change it. Like even their government is different. The state the state constitution is different. Everything about it has. It's like every other culture could have easily been uprooted and was, but it it took so much more down south to get it uprooted. That's why they that's why they focus so much on on calling the south racist, on calling heritage evil. It's because they're trying to chop that root. Maybe all these mounds are just they just add to that. You know, they're like an amplifier for all this reverence around it. And so we've we've become so simple minded. It is so easy. They don't even have to try to play the race card to get it to do exactly. Now the latest thing is Rhode Island needs to change its name known as the smallest state with the biggest name i think it's rhode island and providence plantations or something but clearly the use of the word plantations is just unacceptable anymore because we're all in seventh grade and we got to freak out about things that don't matter and it's ironic because 
You come all the way through school being told you've got to know history because if you don't know your history, it repeats itself. Meanwhile, they're scrubbing it as quickly as they can. Guess what? When you don't know history, it gets repeated over and over and over. But we've kind of come to a very infantile version of reality. But I would suggest that not as many people are going for it. I've had a number of people out to my house in the last two weeks. And with the exception of one, they weren't buying any of this nonsense. And by the way, they showed up without masks. They shook my hand. They said they'd had enough. Some of them were habitual news watchers who said, that's it, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. This is nonsense. And that echoes back to what we were talking about early on with the overreach speeding so many people on the path. I think that if we, if we follow this reverence technology a little bit further, and tie it back into uh, the tabernacle. So just in case anyone doesn't know, before the Temple of Solomon was the tabernacle. It was the tabernacle in the wilderness, basically a portable Temple of Solomon. And there is a reverence technology that also occurs inside that temple. You you are to burn, sacrificially burn your your animal, uh, an animal that you raised from, from a very young young age, that sacrifice that you make is a reverence that you have for the innocence of that animal. That reverence is somehow used by this tabernacle to measure your devotion, to measure the amount of devotion and reverence this machine could extract from its people. I'd like you to pretend or or to look at the Solomon's Temple, the tabernacle in the wilderness, as a machine, a reverence machine. It runs on blood, and that blood has to be 87 octane. It has to have an innocence to it. It has to be willing blood. It has to be willingly shed. That blood is transmuted into showbread, into oil, and into uh, the water basins that are surrounded in this temple. These elements of water, blood, uh, the bread, and the incense— are the same kind of things you'd see in a car. It has oil, it has gasoline, it has electricity. This is how the machine functions. And whether or not you want to go full crazy like I do sometimes or not, if you look at the Temple of Solomon as a machine, if you look at St. Peter's as a machine, you start to understand, oh, this is easy. You put fuel in here and you get outtake here. You get torque here, you get this here. And it's when you start to analyze these buildings as machines, I think it starts to uncover what their actual purpose is, why they're there, and and, and why there's why they why some survived and some didn't. Basically, those are interesting ideas for the simple reasons you know I've pointed out so many times uh, to to cast a spell. Ingredient number one is emotion. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the old Matrix copper top allegory. But I would suggest if you raised an animal, you would care about it. If you killed it, there would be a high release of emotion. Um, In so many of the very old texts, the idea was once upon a time, uh, sex was only used in a sacred way to reproduce. And that was done at the height of the power of the sun for human beings so that your offspring would come in the spring. But the idea being is the human orgasm uh, is a release of energy that is unrivaled. And so when we begin to think about the ideas you're laying down, I mean, I can't tell you you're wrong. Uh, but they're interesting. They're extremely interesting. But does that bring us to it, Jason? It sure does. So, James, why don't you give us all your contact information for hour one before we sign off? Uh, my social security number is X429. Uh, James True is my name. I have a website, jtrue.com. I have a YouTube channel under James True. And I stream a show every day at 11 a.m. most days. Sometimes I take Sundays off. And I have four books out. Um, if I could just say one book, I would say check out Blueprints of Mind Control. It sort of uh, opens opens your eyes up to uh, some of the energy harvesting that's going on around us in the world. And if you like that, then you might like some of my other books. Well said. There it is. Life is a copper top. How do you feel about being a battery? Do you think Neil was wrong? But James, do you have a a, uh, a full subscription to Crow 777 Radio so you, so you can show up in comments when this goes live? Yes, I do. Okay, perfect. I'll email you when this goes live. I'm sure people will want links and things like that. But that does bring us to the top 
of 230, the first hour. Um, the second hour is going to be over at crow777radio.com, where we don't have to be so guarded about the adult ideas that we're expounding upon here. It's available for membership at crrow777radio.com. That is the only true pro site crow777radio.com. There are frauds trying to defame the work we do, trying to take money from people, um, trying to get their data, all kinds of stuff. But anyhow, I hope you'll all join us for the second hour where free speech is the rule at crow777radio.com. There it is, man. Cheers. Belief is the enemy of knowing.